Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Rachel Lippman. Opening day in St. Louis is a special time of year for Cardinals fans. And while the pomp and circumstance is delayed until tomorrow because of the rain, we still have baseball on our minds. I talked recently with Derek Gould. He's the lead Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And he's also the author of a revised and updated version of his book, 100 Things Cardinals Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. I started the conversation with Derek by noting how special opening day is. It's interesting because we were just talking about that here, you know, over the last few days in Pittsburgh as the Cardinals brought to a close that road trip that led into the home opener. Just this notion of where are their special opening days. Cincinnati has a special opening day. It's historically the first opening day, the first professional team. So they used to always get the first game. There's a parade. There's a lot of people who show up. Um, They put up a lot of pomp and circumstance and fanfare. And the Cardinals out do them in a lot of ways um you know opening day is a special time of year for a lot of teams mainly because they get a packed house they're coming back from spring training um, but the cardinals add to it you know the clydesdales and the parade of cars and the hall of famers and i think that's what sets it apart um you have this kind of just swirl of activity um in in no other place and i, and I mean this in no other place is it a civic holiday like it is in st louis i just haven't seen that um, how it's obviously a very small sample size. Um, have not played a lot of games yet out of 162. But um, how how's the team looking so far this year? Do you think they've played well um, at times? Lots of strikeouts, which is odd, um, and that's really been a detriment to their offense. Um, it's cost them in games, particularly in Milwaukee, where several of the rallies just fell short or fell apart or didn't get going much at all because of strikeouts. Um, and then the starting pitching has been uh, shallower in in its games than the Cardinals needed. It's a long season. Um, they're built to contend over the long haul. They're going to have weeks where they probably only win two games. The Brewers, believe it or not, are going to have weeks where they only win two games as well. Uh, and the, the Cardinals, Cubs, Pirates, I mean, this is all very tight division, very evenly matched division. Um, what the Cardinals need to stay ahead, they haven't yet gotten. Um, but they have the potential for it. Uh, they, get a, they have a strength in a bullpen that other teams don't have. They should have a depth of starting pitching that some of the other teams don't have. And they should have, if it works out, a lineup that can match up with some of the better lineups um, in the division, like you're looking at the Reds and the Cubs and the Brewers really standing out offensively. Um, the Cardinals should be right there or a tick behind, and if they get the pitching, then that'll close that gap. I, I think this is a team that um, is sharper, cleaner um, and a good rule of thumb is to pay attention to Yadier Molina. Um, He has a read on teams and often wears his fondness for his team, you know, and for the team's chances on his sleeve. Um, He he wants a contender. He wants to play on a contender and he wants to get a team back to October. He's bothered by their absence and the bounce in his step um, through spring and into this season, even with somewhat of a rocky start, tells you that he thinks that this team is capable of, of getting them there. And, uh, you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's as good a barometer as anything in early in the season. We're talking to Derek Gould, the lead Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And we'll talk in a minute about Paul Goldschmidt, who obviously is the sort of big acquisition over the last offseason. But I'm just wondering if there were any other maybe smaller names or ones that aren't going to make the big splash who you think were good acquisitions that helped bring this team up to a contender again. Well, I think, you know, a full year 
of Colton Wong at second base. Um, you know, a commitment to Colton Wong. So it's not really an acquisition. It's more of uh, a change in approach or uh, or a commitment to him. Um, I think that will be very valuable to the team. He is uh, comfortable, and when he's comfortable, he's confident. When he's confident, he's a talent. Um, he finished last season when Mike Schilt took over. So from that point through the final 69 games of the season, you know, he was arguably the best second baseman in the National League, um, offensively and defensively. He finished runner-up in the Gold Glove Award, um, and by many metrics deserved the Gold Glove Award, is likely on deck to win a Gold Glove this season. That tends to be how that award works. You tend to win it the year after you may have uh, deserved it. Um, he has the voters' attention. Certainly those are managers and coaches. Uh, and then you add to it that he was very productive offensively in the second half, and part of that was he was playing every day. He was very, very comfortable. He wasn't looking over his shoulder wondering if that day's 0 for 4 was going to mean two days on the bench. Um, Schilt committed to him. Um, that has continued into spring training, and that has certainly been a big part of the first series. You look at um, who has played the best on the, on the road trip to start the year, and you know Colton is up there. He's taking walks. He's stealing hits with bunts. Um, he, you know, stole a couple bases. He's showing facets to his game that have been muzzled in the past. And I think you're seeing a guy who may be, may be able to blossom a little bit um, as a full ability. You know, smaller acquisitions like, say, um, you know, it's not a small acquisition at all. He's the tallest guy on the team. It's <laughs> Andrew Miller, the lefty. Um, you know, he, 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 for years the Cardinals have wanted a, a reliever who could do a lot of different things in late innings. And they often would say, you know, if they could find an Andrew Miller type, that would really help put the bullpen together. Well, they got Andrew Miller. Um, you know, he hasn't been the sharpest out of spring training, um, but there's no indication as long as he's healthy that he won't get there. And when he gets there, he can be a dominant left-handed reliever and the type of versatile bridge that they need to get to Jordan Hicks. Um, another small acquisition that isn't a person at all would probably be Jordan Hicks's changeup. Um, Jordan Hicks has, you know, has the best fastball in baseball. He throws it at 103, 104 miles an hour, and it has sink. And he was able to overwhelm hitters with that last season. Let's get to that big acquisition that the Cardinals were able to make, and, and that was Paul Goldschmidt. And people were thinking, is this just going to be a one-year thing? And he actually signed a, a contract extension before the season even started. Let's start with the, the gap that he fills and what, he, what his role is going to be with the team. How important was this acquisition? Oh, it was massive. I mean, it was seven years in the making, right? The Cardinals have been looking for this kind of hitter ever since Albert Pujols left for the coast. Uh, you know, here is the perennial MVP. Uh, you know, the first base in baseball tends to be a place where giants loom. Um, you look at just the division alone, right? You have Joey Votto, a former MVP, and Anthony Rizzo uh, up in uh, up in Chicago, uh, a guy who could also win an MVP at some point in time in his career. Uh, and then Pujols was there for a long time. Prince Fielder was up in Milwaukee. Um, these these were giants. Um, these, these are big offensive producers. And in Paul Goldschmidt, the Cardinals finally have that guy. Um, the two players who were the most productive as first baseman last season were Matt Carpenter and Paul Goldschmidt. Now both of them are on the same team. Um, he's a middle-of-the-order hitter. 
He's an exceptional defensive player. He's an all-round player at first base in the same way that Scott Rowland was an all-round player at third base, and I don't say that lightly. Um, Scott Rowland was one of the most gifted third basemen of his generation, and Paul Goldschmidt is that on the first base side. He's a face-of-the-franchise level player as well. Um, He's a guy who will be involved in the community as much as he's involved in the lineup. So it's a rarity to uh, be able to acquire a player like that at all, um, let alone via trade, and then to keep him um, with a record-setting contract. I mean, it's the largest contract the Cardinals have ever finalized with a player. Not ever offered, but ever finalized with a player. And, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous acquisition. It, has, it is one that, I'll be honest, as I talk to other teams, has left them dumbstruck that the Cardinals could go get a player like that and keep him. And and what was it about? Because it, it did seem to be awful fast that this you know record-setting deal comes up. What does it mean when a team is able to go out and get and lock in a player like that before they even see his performance with that team? Yeah, so it's a great question because the Cardinals haven't been all that great at doing it here recently. Um, you know, you go back to 2009, they acquire Matt Holiday and that offseason, then they're able to lure him back as a free agent. Um, but since then, they've really struggled um, to uh, how to get the player. You know, I mean, they, they traded for Jason Hayward, but then he chose as a free agent to go to the Cubs. He, he turned down uh, more guaranteed money, maybe not potential money, but more guaranteed money from the Cardinals offer to be a Cub. And Giancarlo Stanton, who the Cardinals had a trade in place for, the Marlins had agreed to trade Stanton to the Cardinals, and the Cardinals had agreed to take on more than $250 million of his contract, about $255 million of his contract. And Stanton invoked his no-trade clause to prohibit a trade to the Cardinals, specifically to the Cardinals. He said, I don't want to go there. Um, You know, David Price was overwhelmed by an offer from Boston and and turned down um, a very lucrative offer from the the Cardinals. So, you know, they've not had that success. Um, But when they made the trade for Goldschmidt, um, first of all, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of trade that they don't expect to become a reality. And then when it did, they didn't want to let up on it. They just peppered and peppered and peppered the Arizona Diamondbacks front office with calls and texts and emails to make sure that, hey, look, if this is going to happen, they want a front row seat. If this is going to happen, they they want to be there. They're not going to finish runner-up again, or as the Cardinals have taken to refereeing it, they didn't want to be bridesmaid once again in this pursuit. They were, they were going to make this happen. Um, that's why they pushed so much for it. And from the Arizona perspective, they thought that the Cardinals' aggressiveness meant that they felt not only that they could trade for him, but that they could keep him, um, like that they had some feel for what it would take. Or maybe, and this is more likely true, that the Cardinals were willing to go to the limit to sign him. And, and I think that's where it got is, you know, the, the Cardinals wanted to give Goldschmidt a chance to get comfortable in the clubhouse, to get a feel for the team. Um, and they wanted to get a feel for his personality. You know, you, you learn a player best when you have that player. That's always been the Cardinals' kind of approach. They prefer to get and keep their players than to go out in the free agent market and try to guess at what a player might be like after the riches are given to them. Um, You know, other teams have different approaches, but that's the the Cardinals, and they want to get and keep players. And with Goldschmidt, they, they had a good feeling already. They knew him pretty well. 
um, you know, some former Cardinals speak very highly of Goldschmidt. Um, he's been teammates with Daniel Descalso. He's been teammates with John Jay. He's friends with Matt Holliday. Um, Matt Holliday has been a really strong ambassador for the Cardinals, even though he hasn't played for them in, for several years. Um, but he's also been, you know, offered good insight in the players to the Cardinals. And everybody said that, that Paul Goldschmidt, I think, uh, I think it was John Jay that, that told me that he's just the ideal Cardinal, the perfect Cardinal. And once they got him in the clubhouse and got a feel for that in spring and saw what mutual attraction there was there, it really didn't take long because, like Arizona suspected, the Cardinals were willing to do what it took right away to make that deal happen. We're talking to Derek Gould, the lead Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So I know that in addition to the full-time job of keeping up with all of the ins and outs of Cardinals baseball and traveling with them, you have also written and now updated the 100 things that Cardinals fans should know and do before they die. It's your book. What are some of the, the big things that you added to this new edition that if people have already had the book at home, you'd, you'd like them to go and, and follow up on? Well, the last page of it is actually the trade for Goldschmidt. So we were able to update it through the arrival of Goldschmidt, um, not the long-term extension given him, but the the arrival of him. But I think the the things that stand out um, is it gave me a chance to go back in and uh, and look at a a few different things with maybe broader scope, um, but also new information. And, and, you know, one of those is just plainly an entire chapter about Yadier Molina and what he's brought to the organization um, and the, the continuity that he offers as likely this era's Hall of Famer um, to keep a run going that stretches back to the 1910s of the Cardinals always having a Hall of Famer um, present on the, on the dugout or in the dugout um, for that you know, era. And so I, when the first edition and second edition came out, they were kind of focused around uh, World Series and the championships and Molina was, you know, halfway into his career, not even yet halfway into his career. Now that he's in the autumn of his career, um, it offered me a chance to kind of look at the scope of what he's done. Um, similarly with Adam Wainwright, um, you know, and look at what he has brought as, you know, arguably the second most successful pitcher um, for the Cardinals. Um, certainly is in the conversation for a second most successful behind Bob Gibson. And, you know, look at that. But I also, you know, got to dig into history a little bit. And, you know, the Cardinals have 11 World Series championships, but they also have a 12th championship that, you know, the team is trying to figure out how to honor. I mean, they do, they're not going to do a parade down market for a championship from the 1880s. But the the notion of this blurry kind of goulash of history gives them another title um, and also extends their history even further back than the joining the National League in 1892, I think is fascinating. Um, and it speaks to, you know, just like the deep roots that the, the Cardinals have. Um, so I was able to kind of explore that, um, which seems odd to say, you know, there's new stuff about information that is 140 years old, but it was. It was a chance to kind of revisit some of that and look at how they're trying to look at at whether or not they change things now to reflect history from way back when. So um, those are those are some of the things that uh, that are new. And then of course um, you've had a manager change. Um, you know, the yes, we have was hired and um, had seven years. Um, got the team to the playoffs in the first half of his time with the 
uh, Cardinals. Um, got you know won a pennant in 2013 um, as a relatively new manager, second year the managing second year managing at any level. Um, and then last year there was a you know he was fired and replaced with Mike Schilt, who has a fascinating story. Um, you know he he did not play professional baseball. If when however you want to put that. Um, the Cardinals win a playoff series with Mike Schilt as manager. He'll be the first manager without professional playing experience to win a playoff series since modern baseball as we know it began, which is remarkable. Um, so you have a real contrast there in their two in the two managers that they've had this past uh, well the past 12 months. And there's a whole chapter that explores you know. Matheny's arrival, and then what led to his departure, um, and then, you know, Mike Schilt's origin story as an organizational man who managed at every level. So quite a contrast there. They went from a manager who had not managed at any level to one who has basically done it at every level and has been developed like they would a prospect as opposed to acquired like they would a free agent. Without giving too much away so that people do have reason to go out and get the book, this 1886 championship, why don't the cards claim it? What is sort of the brief backstory as to this sort of maybe ghost 12th championship that this team has? Yeah, so um, the Cardinals, with the blessing of Major League Baseball, sort of set their you know, their established date is 1892, which is when they joined the National League, which, of course, is the league that we know now, American League and National League. And so that choice, um, which also corresponded with the Cardinals wanting to have, you know, a 125th, 100th, well, the 100th birthday, to be candid, um, they wanted to have a 100th anniversary. Um, so these numbers were kind of chosen arbitrarily, kind of done with the blessing of baseball, kind of done to acknowledge the league that they're currently in and not, you know, one that they left behind that is now, um, you know, a bygone league. Um, So all of these kind of things mixed together to have this just, you know, championship lopped off of their history. Um, It's come up here recently because you had all these teams celebrating their 10,000th win, the Giants, the Dodgers, um, all these teams with big histories celebrating their 10,000th win, and the Cardinals were lagging behind. They were years behind, um, in part because they weren't counting the same seasons like some of these other teams were. They were sticking to this 1892 date. Um, What's interesting uh, you know, and, and I've explored some of this in the newspaper as well. So, um, but it goes into greater detail in the book. Is is that the Hall of Fame acknowledges the Cardinals' record from the American Association? The Major League Baseball acknowledges the existence and the veracity of the statistics from the American Association. So, there is there are there is a standards or there is precedent for the teams to embrace that history with Major League Baseball's blessing. I mean, it's just a marketing and a, and a merchandise bonanza for them, I'm sure, because everyone's going to have to go update their 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 gear. In the right. time we have left, Derek, I'm wondering what led you to write two versions of this book. I imagine it was enough time to write the first. What led you to, to do that, to take on the effort of, of writing a book about this team? Well, I mean, 
I, I think it's well. I found it fascinating. I found it first of all, it was a challenge, right? Um, you want to see if you can do it, um, and uh, had never written a book on my own before. Um, the first time I tried it, and just was eager to see if I could pull it off and um, what I could do as far as reporting to get some I, what we would call, I guess, primary reporting in, in the business um, to get some new stuff or fresh quotes or things, so that I wasn't just kind of you know, uh, aggregating past coverage or retelling stories. Um, I wanted to try to get some new stuff, and that was the the challenge of it. Um, and I I uh, I learned from that. Um, you know, that everything has a deadline, so you can't make it exactly like you want. Um, but if given another, you know, well, let's let's use the baseball analogy. If given another at bat, you know a little bit better how to handle that that those pitches, um, how to adjust and. You know, this time around, it was interesting because, you know, the first time we, we the publisher redid it, it was to, uh, um, to, to because of the World Series in 2011. Um, so it was not much of a rewrite. It was basically write a lot about David Freeze um, and another championship and then repackage the book. This time it was more of an overhaul, um, but it gave me a chance to kind of revisit some of these things, spruce up, and also, you know, take – Take a take a different tact with some of the stories that I told in the paper, um, and maybe try to find not just another angle, but another you know depth to it. And and I, I like that. I, I thought it was uh, it was a it was a welcome challenge to see if you could make history fresh again, to see if you can make a book fresh again, um, and how to do that. And I, I I'm intrigued by it. I, I like I appreciate cardinal history. Like back to your question that gets me in so much trouble. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate cardinal history. You know, I I've been around it for a long time. Um, I've had the honor and the responsibility of covering it, but I've also had a grandfather who grew up a cardinal fan, um, was connected to the cardinals through KMOX, had a fondness for Musial, and would tell me stories of the Gas House Gang and the Swifties, and to um, to do this book the first time and then revisit the second time gave me such a chance to understand the details of the stories that he shared with me that maybe I didn't appreciate as a kid, um, but I could still hear in his voice. Uh, That's a treasure. Any of the other 100 moments in the book that you want to mention that you, you you think people would really be intrigued by? I, one of, one of them that took me a long time to report that I found interesting um, and that, you know, it, trying to tease out whether it was true or not, is there's an urban legend that well, everybody knows that when Enos Slaughter was traded by the Cardinals that he broke down in tears. Um, he, he wanted to be a lifelong Cardinal. He, uh, he said as much. Um, he said that he would always be a Cardinal, uh, you know, and didn't want to leave. Um, one of the uh, legends that has grown out of that is that he was buried in his Cardinal jersey. And I, you know, these stories are tossed around and told and you don't know how much of it are legend and how much of it is truth and when i set out to write the book the first time it's like i would really like to find out if that's true and in doing that and asking around and talking to people and and it's just a slim chapter in the book but it took several months to to talk to the right people to to ask what could be an uncomfortable question in some ways um, and explain why I wanted to find out if this was true. 
um, I found out more details about it and his fondness for the Cardinals than I ever expected. If you want to know whether Ener Slaughter was actually buried in his Cardinals jersey, the book is 100 Things Cardinals Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, the updated and revised version. The author is Derek Gould, who is the lead Cardinals beat writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Derek, thank you for your time on St. Louis on the Air. Yeah, thank you for having me, Rachel. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Although originally scheduled for today, opening day is now tomorrow because of the rain. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Littman.